0: So, uh, we're continuing our series, God at Work. And this past week, I went to Paul Henry's work, who is a, Paul is a member here, and he works at PATH, Partners Against Trafficking Humans, and I got to go and see this wonderful ministry done in Jesus' name that was founded. Their founder was actually a, a trafficked victim herself as a um, teenager, and her heart for, um, people is just evident. This church has done quite a bit of stuff with PATH in the past. I've been a part of uh, ministries that fought against trafficking humans, but that was done internationally. And one of the things I did not realize is how much um, this is a problem in central Arkansas. And so I'm very grateful to the godly people who are trying to protect our most vulnerable members of society in Jesus' name. And I want you to know, you go to work or you go to church with someone who does that for a job. And part of the reason I want to do this series is because I want you to know there's a temptation to hear um, callings like that and feel maybe diminished in whatever your calling is, whether it's an accountant or a plumber or a lawyer or, or whatever. But if you do your work with God... All work can be a sacred calling. Um, but the problem with our work is sin. A couple of weeks ago, there was a news story that came out about this restaurant in California. This is a true story. Uh, the restaurant is in California and they have a lot of Hispanic people that work with them. And so they had a Catholic priest come in to minister to their employees. And the Catholic priest took confession. And after a week or two later, it came out, it was not an actual priest. It was an actor that they hired to get work-related sins. And, um, you know, obviously there's a huge problem with that. The The priest was very interested in whether, you know, somebody took something from the office or lied on a time card or all those kind of things. Interestingly enough, in trying to get this topic out, how you've sinned at work, the people sinned against the people they employed. The truth about all of us is one truth that we probably don't like to admit, and that is that sin is the universal human condition. Even if you're self-employed, you work with a sinner, and I have good news for you. There are Jesus followers who have gone before us and kind of left breadcrumbs for how we can live and work through and for God in our sin. Or, um, basically how to respond as Jesus would at our workplace when there is sin at work. And so today I want to do three, I want to talk about three things. Um, on how to respond faithfully to Jesus in our work. And the first one is, pay attention to the story you believe about your work. Two, pay attention to the people you serve or serve with. And three, pay attention to the rhythms you live, particularly when it comes to your work. So let's start with the first one. Pay attention to the story you believe about your work. You know, the interesting thing about Genesis 1 and 2 that I think is mostly missed by people in America when they open their Bible is how countercultural Genesis was to the other creation stories. So, I want you to imagine you're an ancient Jew and you live in Babylon or you live in, uh, Egypt. And the major story of how the world came about was something like this. In the beginning, there were the gods. Marduk and Tiamat, a man god and a woman god. And Marduk and Tiamat were fighting all the time. And eventually Marduk killed Tiamat and cut her body in half. And the first half of her body became the heavens. And the other half of the body became the land. And Marduk, now that he reigned supreme, looked down on the earth and thought, Man, there's a lot to do and I don't want to do it. So he created human beings... Mostly to be slaves. Now, not all of them. There were a few people that this Marduk created that were rulers and pharaohs. And those people were the ones he made in his image. But everyone else was done to serve as indentured servants, slaves. And they had to serve those few handful of people who were um, made in his image. Now imagine you're a Jewish person, a mom or a a dad who's working and you're having to you're in this forced labor, and at the end of the day, you are you you hear this story, create this creation story, uh all the time in your culture. It's it's brought up over and over again. You hear it in the public square, and then you leave the public square and you walk back to your village. And you gather around with some of your friends and family and you light a candle and you tell this story instead. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this God made every human being, male and female, in His image, every single one. And this God has dirt under His fingernails. This God made us and He didn't make us with work as a curse He made us with work as a blessing. Before sin even entered the world, God made us and gave us these abilities and these gifts. It is a noble calling to be able to partner with God in His good world. Now, the reason I say pay attention to the story you believe about your work is because you hear the story about Marduk and Tiamat, and you're like, oh, that sounds so primitive. can't believe those people are like that. But pay attention to the story we believe. Listen, God may have created the world through evolution, But I have have less problem with what we make evolution say about our past. I have more of a problem with what we try to make it say about our present and our future. Because here's the story that is in our public square. We're all a product of evolution. There's probably no God. And since we came from evolution, we've come so far, then evolution works off everything slowly getting better, which is basically the myth of progress. And here's how that plays out in our actual life, specifically our work life. It depends on you working more, working more efficiently, rising stock values. And since it's only the survival of fittest in life, the only way to get ahead is to be better than the other businesses, work harder than other employees, and get what you can while you can. I know the story of Marduk sounds like this really ancient primitive thing, but it is a story that you are, in some level, constantly hearing, just recycled. It sounds really primitive and barbaric, but it is as relevant as your Monday morning. Genesis says that all work has an inherent dignity to it because God wants to work in us and through us to serve the world. Now listen, you can't make stuff out of nothing. Only God can do that. But in the Bible, God gives human, bil- human beings the ability to take the stuff that He has made and refashion it as a way to serve the world. So look at this. This is the way one Psalm puts it. Psalm 104. He makes grass grow for the cattle. What do we do with that? Plants for people to cultivate. Bring forth food from the earth. Wine, which comes from grapes, which are refashioned by human beings. Wine that gladdens human hearts. Oil to make their faces shine. And bread that sustains their heart. He makes the grass grow. He makes the plants grow. And what we do with that is serve the world. And since we are working with and for the Lord, let's do what we do with a sacred effort. On March 4th, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln gave his second inaugural address. It was right towards the end of the Civil War. Um, The country was broken. And so was President Lincoln. The hardness of the last few years of his presidency uh, showed on his face. And he stood up and he gave an inaugural address calling the nation to heal. He shared his heart. He shared his sorrow. And he called the nation forward. And he didn't know how it was received. And then he saw... Frederick Douglass. And Frederick Douglass said, Mr. Lincoln, Mr. President, that was a sacred effort. I really like that. A sacred effort. There's not much more a man or woman can give than that. And I say that because we live in a world today marked by mediocrity and selfish ambition. One of those two things... Half-hearted people giving a percentage of their potential to those around them—you can see this everywhere—or or selfishness everywhere. Politicians marked by narcissism and corruption, serving themselves—it's a selfish effort. Po- uh, products that are sloppily built and, and um, without thought of the people who will use them—a half-hearted effort. Indifferent customer service causing frustration and disappointment. Disappointment, half-hearted effort, or you know, kids playing at the park while the parent is on the screen. Um, it is not hard for a person to stand out in a world of mediocrity and selfishness. Just do things with a sacred effort. So here's what that looks like. Treat your kids like it might be the last time you will see them. One day that will be true. If you're, if, if you're in a marriage, treat your marriage as if you have an enemy looking to destroy it. You do. Do your work with excellence like it's for Jesus himself. It is worship like you're preparing for eternal life you are the great band u2 the frontman bono uh, a couple of months ago came out with their memoir his memoir and in it bono was talking about how before they were u2 before they were this really big you know mega band they used to play these like rinky dink venues And he just said this as kind of a passing comment. Here's what Bono said. We played clubs, empty clubs, but we played them like it was stadium. We played them like it was Madison Square Garden. And eventually, because they played like that, it eventually was. Or what about this? Martin Luther King Jr., a few months before he was assassinated, was speaking at a high school in Philadelphia, and he said this if it, to a bunch of students. If it falls to your lot to be a street sweeper, sweep streets like Michelangelo painted pictures. Sweep streets like Beethoven composed music. Sweep streets like Shakespeare wrote poetry. Sweep streets so well that the host of heaven and earth will pause and say, here lived a great street sweeper. Who swept his job well. Listen, you can't, you have these human limitations. You wish you could do more than you can. You can't fix everything, change everything, save everyone, but you can do what God puts in front of you with a sacred effort. And in a mediocre, mediocre world that is full of selfishness, that is enough. That's what it means to believe a different story when it comes to your work. Now, that all sounds really good. But the problem is, when you go to work, you're going to bump into other people's sin. And so I want to talk about the second thing, the people we serve and the people we serve with. Because people are where things get dicey. Um, you know, listen, I think, generally speaking, when it comes to work, I think most people are trying to do what they consider to be the right thing. But, and tell me if this isn't true in your own experience, have you ever been tempted... Maybe to tell a white lie when you get caught doing, um, maybe, maybe something that wasn't, um, uh, what you were supposed to be doing. Or to make yourself look better, to save face. Or have you ever, um, maybe withheld information from a coworker so you could get a leg up on a project? Or maybe overlooked a supplier error and it, cost underbilling or or whatever. I don't know what it looks like for you, but the reason I want you to think about it is because in my experience almost nobody thinks of themselves as a villain. We all tend to be able to justify some things in our own mind. And one of the things about working with people is that you have to you have to be with them, right? And work can be a little bit it's like a marriage, right? Um, marriage, if you're married, then you've probably had this experience. Those first few months, few years of marriage, all of a sudden you, you, you marry somebody wonderful and then you realize you married a monster. (laughs) You're like, oh man, they're so selfish and, you know, whatever. And what you're really doing is, marriage is a little bit of a way that God holds up a mirror to you and lets you see what's going on in your own life. And I think the thing is, the same is true about a work community. I often say church is like a laboratory of love and forgiveness. And at first, that's like, oh, wow, that sounds so sweet. Hobby Lobby should make a sign. But it is not that. You know why it's, church is a laboratory of love and forgiveness? It's because you have to learn to love real people, not in theory. You have to learn to forgive real people doing, who have really wronged you in some way. And work is the same way, at least it is for a Christian, because whenever you work with people, you work with sinners, and sin always hurts people. So, I want you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 4, right after sin has entered the world, we find that it's also entered our work. Genesis chapter 4, first, human beings, Adam and Eve, they have a couple of kids, and this is what happens. Adam made love to his wife, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord I have brought forth a man. And later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of his, uh, some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favor. So Cain was angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. And Cain doesn't take the advice. Immediately after, he said to his brother Abel, hey, let's go out to the field. While we're in in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. And it goes on, the Lord does give Cain some grace. But the reason I want you to see this is because it's a pretty vivid example. ...of sin in the workplace. And and we don't read that story and think workplace, but it was. Cain and Abel are, are contributing to the family enterprise together. And this has a lot to say about the dynamics of sin. And it doesn't explain why God favored Abel's sacrifice... ...which is the kind of conversation I'm sure Cain would like to have had. But instead, God comes to Cain... ...and instead of addressing that situation that had made him so angry... God says to Cain, you better become pretty self-aware pretty quick. You need to look inward. Do a fearless moral inventory. You have a temptation that... And, and sin, by the way, in this story, strikes me as a principality in power. One that is uh, searching to, to um, ruin someone's life. And Cain is told... Be, become self-aware. Pay attention to what's going on inside of you. And he immediately ignores the advice. Allows his negative emotions to dominate him. And then he murdered his brother. Up until this point in Genesis, work was a gift. It was a blessing. In fact, you can even see that in the shadow of what God says to Cain. He takes his work away from him. All of a sudden, in this story, you begin to see, this is what sin does in our lives And in our work. And I probably don't need to tell you how that looks like in your work. Maybe some of you have been burnt by it. Some some of you have been burnt by gossip at your work. Or you've been stabbed in the back by people who were looking to get ahead. Maybe some of us have done those things ourselves. And so hear the word of the Lord this morning. The first thing God says to Cain is pay attention to yourself. Become self-aware. Sin is crouching at your door. And sin is not some abstract thing. Sin always causes hurt and harm. And, And so, what if in your work, when you hit a bump in the road or when things get dicey, what if the first step was to look in the mirror and ask the question, Yeah, I know they're acting like that. I know this is happening. But where is this working in me? That... Listen, there is very little in your life that will disrupt your sleep, your life, as much as interpersonal conflict. Um, And working with people, you're bound to have that sooner or later. And the way the Bible talks about it is, it's miserable. In fact, in Proverbs, which is like a training manual for parents sitting down with their kids telling them how to live a good life, um, the Proverbs repeatedly talks about this. So, look at this, in Proverbs 17... Better a dry crust with peace and quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. It is better, it is better for you not to make that many digits on your salary and actually be able to live with peace and joy. Um, or what about this in Proverbs 13? Where there is strife, there is pride. But wisdom is found in those who take advice. Listen. The best thing I know to do, because where there's strife, there's pride. And you can't get pride out of other people. But you can look in the mirror and deal honestly with your own. You can approach that situation with humility. Um, or what about this? In Proverbs 17, The integri- uh, Proverbs 11, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. In other words, all those white lies or not-so-white lies or misrepresenting or all those eventually add up. And there will be consequences to it. This is what Proverbs has been been saying. Or what about this in Proverbs 17? One who who has knowledge uses words with restraint. Listen to that. The smartest person in the room isn't the one that's always talking. And whoever has understanding is even-tempered. Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they held hold their tongues. Some of you hear this and you're like, oh, I think I've been in that meeting. Um, so, or what about this in Proverbs 17? One who, whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. This is the interpersonal stuff that, this is what sin actually looks like. In a team or an office or a job site, and so how do you do how do you deal with that? couple of things when you are wronged and you will be, what if you worked to forgive them? Yeah, they took credit for your idea, and that was wrong, and yeah, they gossiped about you, um, and that was wrong but and this is what it means to live pay attention to the story you believe about your work and your life. Because I think a way of following Jesus and paying attention to your life, even though it's easy, sin loves to, you know, our pride is wounded, our, you know, our hackles are up. Sin loves to make you pay attention to how victimized you have been. What if you started thinking like this? If you only knew the stuff I've been forgiven from, if you only knew what Jesus delivered me from, you would know I don't have any stones to throw. There's a member of our church who a couple of years ago, a business partner really, really wronged him, betrayed him, stabbed him in the back. And this member had all the leverage in the world. He could have gone scorched earth on this business partner. They had been partners for over a decade. And he thought about it for a while. What am I going to do? And when they finally sat down, the business partner knew he had been caught, knew he had been found out. He was really nervous in this initial meeting. And this PV member said, listen, I am a Christian and I take that seriously. So I want you to know what I'm going to do about this. I'm going to forgive you. And I mean it. I doesn't mean I'm going to trust you again immediately. But I'm not going to keep bringing this up. We can work through this. I am going to forgive you. And it changed the dynamic of that relationship and the future of that business. And what if... So forgiveness is a great Christian resource that the Holy Spirit will give you the ability to do if you'll just not let pride have foothold in your heart. And what if it dawns on you that you've done those things? What if it dawns on you that, you know, something you did six days or six months ago was something that you did and wronged another person? Well, here's another Christian resource. Go back and tell them you're sorry if that's at all possible. The word the Bible uses for that is repentance. But to do those kind of things, forgiveness and repentance and confession, those kind of things are going to require being rooted in the vine, being rooted in Jesus, more than just attendance at a, an hour on a Sunday morning. Because you're trying to act like Jesus in your workplace. And how did Jesus become the kind of person he was? He didn't just do the synagogue and once a week and then hit the, hit the, um, hit the streets preaching. No, he he practiced time with God. And that brings me to the third one. Pay attention to the rhythms you live. Um, Jesus often got away from the crowds and spent time in prayer. He rested on the Sabbath, which we're going to talk about next week. He celebrated life. He had long meals with good friends. He had a different relationship with time. I don't know if you paid attention in the Gospels, but Jesus is never in a hurry. He had a better relationship to time. He didn't think that this life was all there was, and so he had he lived this life well. So what if we went to work with Jesus and like Jesus? What if you approached your job, whatever it is, as if you're trying to figure out how would Jesus live this if he had this particular calling? Because we want to go to work differently as people who work for God. Amen. And one of the big things we can do, is learn how to turn our attention to God at work. In the Christian faith, attention is almost the whole enchilada. Um, and, and by the way, I'm not trying to get you to turn your attention to God so that you can like, you know, get blessing at work and get rich and all that kind of stuff. The, the presence of God is the reward. Uh, there's a, a great book by Denise Daniels and Shannon Vanderwark in their book, Working in the Presence of God. It, they talk about spiritual practices of ordinary work and they suggest some great practical things like what if when you get to your office or work site, what if you walked through it when you first get there in the morning and pray for the people that are your coworkers and the people that you're going to be interacting with. Listen, I'm kind of embarrassed about this, but I didn't start doing this until like eight years ago. Uh, I'm embarrassed because I kind of get paid to pray. And what I realized was about 12 year, or 8 years ago when I was working in Abilene, I was starting to be really short with my ministry um, teammates and the other office staff. I was starting to treat them like cogs in a machine. And I realized um, I don't pray for these people. And so I started doing that regularly. Let me tell you what I began to notice. Within a few weeks, I began noticing I'm a little bit more interested in their lives and their opinions and what they think, what they're going through. It became easier to give them the benefit of the doubt and start putting myself in their position. So what if you just started praying for the people you work with? That's a pretty big thing. There's a a guy named Caleb Monroe who's on staff at a church in Los Angeles, Reality Church, and he is he's responsible for, his job is to write a lot. And he comes in at the beginning of every day and he prays this prayer, and I thought it was such a great prayer, I wanted you to see it. He prays this prayer before he begins work. He says this, Because this work demands my full attention, I make my attention an offering. Please accept it as my continuous prayer. Grant me the grace to remain in your presence as I write. Prosper me with your assistance. Receive all my work and possess all my affections. And then he sits down and he begins to write as a way to serve the Lord and his people. And at the end of his task, he prays a prayer of gratitude. What if before you went to that meeting, you prayed... What if before you had that difficult conversation, you prayed? If you find you're in a meeting and you find yourself annoyed or disengaged, pray and ask God to give you the ability to have the, be able to see the people you're in that meeting with as, um, created in the image of God and that they have dignity and special value. Or what about you go to the office or work site or wherever you're at. Do things to break up your day and turn your attention back to God. Like a standing prayer. This is something monks used to do. They would uh, stand and use their body to pray. Um, you don't have to say that out loud or even say what you're doing. They would take a break from what they were doing by standing and praying and then going back to their work. Or what about a walking prayer? If you, if you have a desk job... Walk around maybe your place of employment and pray. Or a post-it note prayer. If you have a lot of anxieties or worries when you get into the office or you're facing a challenging week, write down your concerns. Offer it as a prayer to God and then crumple it up and throw it away as a way of physically reminding you to cast your cares on Him. Listen, this is these are not magic tips. What they are is just ways of getting you to consider how you can turn your attention back to God on a routine basis at your work. Because that's what you really want, even if you don't know it. Don't you want to live a life of peace and joy and patience and a work life of that too? There's a guy named Lawrence who was a soldier several hundred years ago. And Lawrence got injured, and so he could no longer be a soldier. But he had a deep hunger for God. He wasn't like a super religious person. so He wasn't going to become a priest or a monk or anything. But he had a hunger for God, and now that he was injured, he went to a monastery, and he worked as a dishwasher. Which doesn't strike a lot of people as a very noble or special job. That was what Lawrence did. And people would come to visit the monks in the monastery... But they found themselves talking more to Lawrence than the monks. They noticed there was something different about Lawrence. And then they would leave and they would uh, write letters, not to the monks, but Lawrence, asking him for advice, which I think has got to be a little bit of a slap in the face to the monks, like, hey, it's mail day, Lawrence, you got some more letters, you know, I'm sure monks were like, are there anybody else getting letters? Anyway. Lawrence kept getting these letters and he kept responding, telling them how he approached life and his work. And after Lawrence died, they took all of his letters that he had written these people and they collected them and they made a book out of it. You can still get this book. It'll only take you about 30 minutes to read. I highly recommend it. It's called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. And in it, here's how he describes his work life. Tell me this doesn't sound like something you want. In the kitchen... When everything's chaotic, he says, the time of business, kitchen, does not differ with me from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several people are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God with great peace as if I were on my knees before communion. In other words, those moments of, you know, spiritual highs, you know, those great spiritual experiences. Brother Lawrence, through practice, has learned that God is always with us. I love the language he uses, practicing the presence of God. Because this is a practice. And I don't know about you, but that's not my default state, right? we got five kids, it's not like I'm just like, Oh, God is everywhere. <laughs> but you, we can become those kinds of people. But it's going to require turning our attention routinely back to the presence of God, to work in the rhythms, to remind ourselves of the story we live, of the people who are made in God's image that we work around, that we serve with and serve. And if we do these things, we'll begin to see God at work and maybe we'll be able to begin to see the way God sees at work. I saw a story on CBS News just a few weeks ago that kind of captured all three of these things that I wanted to close this sermon with. If you could play that clip.
1: Finally tonight, Harvard Law School is considered to be one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the world. CBS's Steve Hartman introduces us to one of its newest graduates on the road. No one has ever attended Harvard Law School for its sparkling glass doors or smudge-free countertops. In fact, support staff here say most students never even notice their efforts, with one remarkable exception. He says, I just want to give you a hug and, you know, say hi to you. They say one day this one student started thanking all of them. Thank you for what you do. And this is something very different. I'm like, what is this kid's angle? Food service worker, Brion Merchant, was skeptical. Before that? But once I heard his background, that's when it just all made sense. I'm like, oh, you see us because you're one of us. Mm-hmm. For sure. That student is Rehan Staten. Before coming to Harvard Law, he worked in sanitation.
0: My job was to refurbish the dumpsters. I've heard people literally point to me and point to my coworker and say, like, don't be like them. I think it just reminds me to stay humble and um, just remember I wasn't always standing here.
1: Today, Rehan has not only maintained his humility, he has multiplied it. Earlier this year, Rehan started a nonprofit called the Reciprocity Effect. Its mission? To guarantee that from now on and forever, the support staff here at Harvard Law would not only be seen, they would be celebrated. This was the first support staff awards banquet. Honoring in Oscar-like fashion the custodians and cafeteria workers and everyone else who makes this place possible.
0: The feeling of knowing that you are appreciated will always go a long way, especially for those who don't know that. I think that's what makes what Rahan did so special
1: is because you didn't even realize how unseen you were until you were seen. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is kind of nice. Rahan Satan. In the coming days, a lot of graduates will stand high on a stage, a great vantage point, to finally see all the people who lifted them there. (laughs) Steve Hartman on the road in Cambridge, Massachusetts.